Hey, this is Bradley. Uh, what's coming up now is a great episode with David Hogg. David is one of the most compelling young political figures in this country. It was recorded before the recent mass shooting in Maine, a tragedy that only has greater urgency to David's cause. One definition of insanity, as they say, is doing the exact same things over and over and expecting a different outcome. That's what we have right now on guns, literally insane policies. How do we escape it? That's what this conversation with David is about. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is David Hogg. Um, a lot of you probably already know who David is, and he's someone that I've kind of gotten to know and work with a little bit over the last couple of months and have, have really enjoyed it. And uh, we, we've become friendlier and friendlier and asked him to come on the podcast and talk about what he's doing right now. And he was gracious enough to say yes. So, David, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, well, I really want to focus on on your organization, Leaders We Deserve, but and my guess is the majority of our listeners already know who you are, but just kind of quickly go through the kind of what brought you into public life um, so that we're all working off the same baseline. Yeah, absolutely. So I got started in politics after the shooting at my high school in Parkland, Florida, when I was 17 years old, where 17 of my classmates and administrators were shot and killed by a former student with an AR-15 um, that he legally owned. Um, and afterwards, I mobilized with my classmates to create one of the largest youth movements in American history called March for Our Lives, uh, which is a movement to help register new young people to vote, turn out, um, and demand action at their state legislatures and in Congress. After that, you know, uh, one of our first employees was Maxwell Frost. Maxwell worked for us for a couple of years, and he told me that he wanted to run for Congress. I helped him run for Congress, uh, and now he... Uh, is the youngest member of Congress. He's the first Gen Z person in Congress. After that, uh, I talked to his campaign manager and I said, wouldn't it be great if we brought this model to the state legislative level um, and help create more Maxwells in Congress? So that's why we started Leaders We We Deserve. We're essentially trying to be like Emily's List for young people, uh, where we help come in with early money for campaigns for people running under the age of 30 for state legislature and under 35 for Congress. Uh, and we are not an organization that tries to endorse 150 people necessarily. We're really narrowly focused on 15 to 30 people for state legislature, the most charismatic and smart young people that we can find from our generation, and then one or two, maybe three members of Congress um, in supporting them. So we come in and we not, not only do we help with funding for the campaigns, we also help with advising them, uh, connecting them to the resources that they need to be connected to to win. Got it. So, you know, obviously most people know you uh, because of your gun advocacy. But you know, as we've discussed, I think in the last six years, your thinking has evolved, right? Not not so much your position on guns, but kind of the broader way that you think uh, you can impact society. So walk us through that thought process of sort of from when March for Our Lives was this established successful thing till you made the decision that, look, look, I want to do something even broader. Yeah, well, uh, so I, I started out, like I said, after the Parkland shooting uh, with my classmates, um, after the shooting, we mobilized thousands of students to show up at our state legislature in Tallahassee to demand action. And you know, despite what many adults said to us and many political supposed insiders and geniuses said to us, um, who all said the same thing, which was essentially that we couldn't change gun laws because this was Florida and a bunch of young people are just dumb and stupid. And you know, it's great that you have passion, but you're not gonna do anything we did. We raised the age to buy guns to 21 in the state. And we also passed a law that can disarm people that are risk themselves and others. And we did that in an entirely Republican-controlled state. Um, after that, I took a gap year and did more work with March for Our Lives, uh, helping to register students to vote, rallying them around the country, building out the organization more, and then went to college for four years, where I graduated recently with my degree in history. Um, and as I was in college, I would be 
you know, on Maxwell Frost's kitchen cabinet calls every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. my junior year of college talking about, okay, you have, you know, a couple thousand dollars in the bank when he started. How do we do more call time? How can we get you more supporters? Um, and I ended up raising Maxwell $380,000 in his first two quarters, um, you know, which was not the sole factor by any means, but helped early on in the campaign um, to be taken more seriously. Because a lot of the times people look at how much money candidates have, have raised uh, to take to see who they want to take seriously. And then it kind of becomes a snowball where whoever has the most money then gets the most endorsements, then gets the most support, then gets more donations and so on and so, uh, so forth. Um, and, you know, I looked at I looked around in politics and I and I asked myself, why do I not feel represented in the Democratic Party? And I realized it's because there aren't people that really look like me in terms of age specifically that understand what it's like to to go through, you know, the anxiety of a school shooter drill, uh, what it's like to go through um the thought process of debating whether or not you will have children on a planet that may not, you know, be inhabitable by the time that you would be able to necessarily. Um, and I wanted more people like that in office. I think, you know, oftentimes we hear stories about how, you know, people say Trump is the greatest threat to democracy. And I agree with that, but I think there's an equally great, but more long-term threat to democracy, which is young people's lack of hope in democracy. You know, if we raise a generation of children that are going through school shootings in the very classrooms where they're being taught that democracy is the greatest form of government, but democracy can't even keep them safe in their schools. I fear greatly for the future of our country and democracy um, because it's an incredibly uh, powerful tool to say that democracy doesn't work if we can't keep kids from getting shot in their schools. Right. So I see this as bringing young people into office um, to help put the, the pressure that we need on it and to give people, young people the representation that we deserve in office, that we need in office, um, to have that faith. And it's not to say we're against older people in office, but it's to say, you know, experience matters when you start out. And the best way to get more experienced legislators is to start them when they're young. President Biden has been so effective because he started when he was 29 years old. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here is to give our young people hope in democracy because we've been voting in record numbers. But the reason why is not because we're hopeful, it's because we're terrified. And that's not a sustainable solution. And so, you know, you get younger people to run and the good news is you're bringing a different energy, a different mindset, a different everything into the state legislature. It would seem to me some of the, the challenges you still have is one, um, you know, for example, if you're electing more Democrats in blue states, like their gun laws, for, if just use guns as an example, are already fine, right? That's not really tougher. It's not going to really change anything. The problem is, is red states, whether that's abortion or guns or immigration or whatever else. And the second is, you know, I'm drawing on my sort of last 25 years working directly in government politics and, and mostly in state and local is human nature, right? Which is people run for office and they've got great ideas and they really want to be independent. And then the system has this incredible way of sucking them in. And then all of a sudden, slowly they go from, you know, this fierce advocate for whatever this idea is to really a politician that is primarily concerned about reelection and nothing else. Um, and then they're no better or worse than any other politician. So how do you deal with those two problems? Well, for one, we, fo we don't focus on blue states. Uh, we're not trying to get more young people elected in blue states. We focus on lean red to purple states. Mm -hmm. um, and we really see this. I think some of your listeners will understand this and a lot of other people that I say this to that are not as financially literate a lot of the time, uh, which is um, what we're trying to do here is build the S&P 500 of change, essentially, where we're investing in young people at all levels of government, decade after decade, year after year, um, to really create that change where we're putting all of us in one basket. We're trying to see who are the most charismatic young people of our generation um, 
that we can get into office now so that they can get to work to fixing the government that we all know is broken, but we also know is not, you know, unfixable at the same time. Okay, so that's the first one, human nature. How do you stop these people who, when they're yeah. 27, are amazing, and then they're like 37, it's like, oh, I can't do that. I don't want to piss off some primary voters or, you know, the, all the usual stuff. Well, I think part of what we're trying to do is take people from movements for that reason. People like Max Orfrost, who come from the movement space, the movements against gun violence, the movements for women's rights, the movement for uh, environmental justice and more, where they know that, you know, they can't, they can't compromise their own principles in order to make progress in the first place, especially when we need to save the planet, when we need to stop kids from dying from gun violence. And I think, uh, you know, if we build this good infrastructure in the first place to always bring more young people into office and there are younger people coming in behind those formerly younger people uh, that we elected, it can help keep the pressure on, especially because we do so much work in blue primaries where, you know, a lot of people don't focus on them because they're safe races. Um, but we can elect progressives there that can push the entire state legislature uh, to demand more, including potentially even some older candidates that started out with us when they were younger in the first place. So one of the things that I think you've shown so far is the ability to really use social media and, and use the Internet broadly to rally this generation in a way that, that other generations sort of simply can't do. Um, two things. One, tell the Laura Ingram story because it's, it's a great story and I, I actually write about it in, in my book on mobile voting. Um, and two, kind of what's the utopia for sort of a digital democracy in your view? Yeah, well, um, so Laura Ingram came, I, I posted about being disappointed that I didn't get into UCLA uh, when I was younger and dumber, frankly, and uh, just shouldn't have posted about it in the first place. But you know, I did. Uh, and, you know, Laura Ingram took that and used it. I, mind you, I was 17 years old, basically, or 18 years old. I just turned 18. And Laura Ingram decided that she would take my story and put it on Fox News on her show and basically say, I'm a dumb idiot and that I suck uh, in a number of different ways. And, you know, I, I went after the one thing that the shameless Fox News hosts care about, which is not ethics or morality, clearly coming after a kid, frankly, a kid that just survived a school shooting. Um, I went after their money. So I, I actually tweeted out a list of all the biggest corporate sponsors of Laura Ingram's show and had people say, you know, here is like, I, I tweeted out that list and had people start calling up their customer service to say, stop supporting her show. And by the end, I think within like a week of doing that, she had to go off air for like two weeks because they were losing like so much money. And she said it was for personal reasons, and it was just crazy. She ended up having to apologize to me, and I did not accept the invitation, uh, the apology because it wasn't genuine. She only did it after they were losing presumably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's not genuine. And what do you think? So the the because these were major corporations that all of a sudden stopped advertising. If you had to put yourself in the shoes of like, okay, now you're at you know the headquarters, and you know you start rallying people. What do you think was going through their mind? What was the thing that all of a sudden made them say, okay, we got to listen to this generation. We have to take this seriously. Well, I think it's that we, our voices were so big after the shooting that we were speaking out and we really had a major moment and they felt a lot of pressure to do something that people were calling them up and saying, what the hell, why are you supporting somebody who's attacking somebody like myself, you know, simply for not getting into a school. And, you know, in the end, I, uh, I think that's why they, move so quickly is because there was so much pressure and it was very quick and fast and they felt like they had to do something. And it's not very hard to say that you're just not going to spend money on advertising anymore. Like what is the major downside there, right? Like they can go and spend that money elsewhere for those corporations. So it doesn't really matter that much to them. There's not, it literally might even save them money. 
Um, so I think it was, you know, just basic incentives. You had a major public outcry for people to take action or for people, for Laura Ingram specifically to not be a jerk. Um, and, you know, a call for these corporations to not support her anymore. And it's easy when it, it comes between a lot of bad press for supporting her and included with that spending several hundred thousand dollars or more on that advertising just to get that bad press. So it's a, it was a relatively easy decision, I think, for a lot of them in the day. Yeah. And do you think, did her behavior change? Did she, she probably never mentioned, did she ever mention your name on the air again? She recently came after, um, I think it was Aiden Cohen Murphy, who's on our advisory board. Yep. He's 19 years old and he started like Gen Z for change. Yeah. He, he's and been on she the came after him recently. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I, I was just talking to him yesterday because we were at this, at the same event together. And he was mentioning that. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. She really has not learned anything. And I, I think it may be time for another boycott soon. Yeah. Aiden wants. We can announce it on this podcast. Um, so digital, so I think where you and I have sort of realized that we have some common ground and you want to work together is around this notion of kind of digital democracy and kind of using technology to empower this generation, to give them a voice, and ultimately to make it far easier for them to actually vote, which is really what changes things. How would, how would the world look in, in your perfect idea of, of, of really you combining technology and, and government? I think it would basically look like making it as easy as possible for everybody who's eligible to vote to vote in the first place. And it's not to say that, you know, I don't think that we should have polling places. I think that we definitely need those. But I think we should have the option, especially for rural people who live in areas where it's not easy to vote. A lot of the time we should have the option for young people who are, you know, in class or working several jobs or people of any age that just have a hard time making it to a polling place on a Tuesday of all days, you know, uh, making it as easy, as easy as possible for them to vote from their phone. Um, or register to vote from their phone so long as it's through a very secure process and people know that you know it can be trusted as a system in the first place there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that on top of that you know there it's um there's so many basic things that we could do using the technology that we have today to expand our democracy and the reason why i think this really matters is because look the vast majority of americans support common sense gun laws things like universal background checks the idea that you, you should need a background check regardless of whether or not it's private sale have 90 plus support percent support, even in the most conservative of polls on Fox News, for example. The reason we don't have those policies a lot of the time is because of special interests being able to make their voices heard a lot more because they're able to create these barriers to, to voting, where it's typically a lot of older people, a lot of older white people in particular that are able to vote a lot more um, that, because they're retired and they have the privilege of not having extremely long lines at their polling places a lot of the time versus younger people where we are having polling places taken off of our campuses in Texas, for example, where we're having our ballots invalidated by arbitrary signature requirements if we vote absentee, for example, where, you know, in 2018, when we started in Parkland, met, I think over 20% of the absentee ballots that 18 to 29 year olds used in Parkland were thrown out. And the reason for that is because when you register to vote and you, if you vote absentee in Florida at the time, your signature had to match identically with the signature that you registered to vote with. And whose signatures change a lot? Young people, right? Because we don't know what our signature is necessarily. It's not gonna be the same every time a lot of the time. And I think making sure that we have that easy accessibility to things like mobile voting can help change a lot of that and, and make sure that we have democracy that represents first and foremost, the people's interest and not the special interest. Yeah. I, tell me if you agree or disagree with this, which is I would argue that Republicans are making a very significant strategic mistake in kind of seeding all of the playing ground uh, around Gen Z and Gen Alpha 
to the Democrats, right? Because at least I would say from what I've seen, this is not a generation that is necessarily highly partisan or one issue voters, or they just want shit to get done. And I don't think that they're automatically unwilling to consider a Republican candidate for office, but you got to meet people where they are, right? And if you refuse to engage with them in the ways that they use media and technology, and you refuse to consider points of view on issues like climate or guns that they care about, then you're kind of writing them off. Um, Are you seeing something similar? And and what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, the numbers don't lie. Republicans are committing political suicide um, by writing young people off. We are obliterating them in these elections. You know, just as an example, I, I used to hear, I still hear all the time, you know, young people just need to vote way more. That's the answer to all of this. But the reality is in 2000, Young people 18 to 29 years old voted 50-50 for Bush and Gore. It wouldn't matter if we had 200% youth voter turnout if we were canceling out our votes. What's happened, though, in recent years is not only is Gen Z since 2018 voting in the highest rates in American history, and we voted at such a high rate and such a high margin for candidates that represent our interests that we effectively canceled out the votes of people over 65, the traditional cream of the crop Republican voter, the Social Security voter. Right. That is how much Gen Z is turning out and voting. And it's not because we're hopeful. It's because we're terrified of the future of our country. And I think that's part of why it's so important what we're doing for leaders we deserve, because we need to get young people in office that represent our generation demographically and ideologically to show them, to show our generation that there is representation out there for us. There are people like Justin Jones who understand the anxiety of what it's like to go through a school shooter drill that are in office and representing us. And it's not to say that we shouldn't have old people in office. I personally like President Biden a lot. I think he's done an incredible amount of work, in part because he started when he was so young at 29, and he has decades of experience. That's how we got the most climate spending in American history. That's how we got the first gun safety bill uh, in 30 years past. That's how we got billions of dollars of student debt canceled, even though he doesn't have the Supreme Court or the Senate a lot of the time. Uh, and I think we have to we have to do that because we need young people to have that faith that hope is possible that knowledge that our political system that we all know is broken but it's not unfixable right um when you run into gen z trump supporters and talk to them what do you learn from them what do you say to them and what about their perspective do you think people on the left sort of don't understand but probably should um i mean honestly i don't talk to many gen z Trump. <laughs> i was wondering if they're a little hard to find at liberal arts colleges around america they are there for sure but they are not i i did not talk to very many of them but um look i think i think more broadly what what uh a lot of the democratic party does not understand about trump voters in general and i think Ron DeSantis actually shows this is that Trump is effective not solely because of his cultural message, he's effective because of his economic message and his economic populism. And I think at large, a lot of the Democratic Party has written that off because they think he's just racist and xenophobic, which he is. Um, But there is something that's resonating with uh, many Americans about his economic populism, that I think Ron DeSantis is a good example of how it's not enough just to have that cultural message. You have to have the economic populist message in order to be able to get a lot of these voters in the first place. And, you know, that's a bit one of the bigger things I think that happens. Not to mention the fact I really don't think America is as divided as we think we are right. a lot of the time. I think our government is a lot more divided than the people are. When I talk with even the most extreme gun rights supporters that are often people counter protesting me, I find a lot more agreement with them than you would think. Um, and they find a lot more agreement with 
with me than I think they would think. Um, and part of the reason for that is we're not just talking about, you know, I think we spend too much time focusing on the, the many things that we can't agree on instead of the many things that we can't agree on. Uh, or that the many things that we can't agree on, we spend too much time focusing on. And the many, there are, without realizing there are many things that we do agree on, right? An example of that is mental health funding. The vast majority of Americans support more mental health funding for the two thirds of gun deaths that are suicides, right? And the fact that Gen Z in particular is so heavily impacted by the mental health effects of isolation and having everything shut down and not being able to see our friends and family. Um, but we don't get any action on that because it, it's more beneficial to the parties, frankly, to keep us divided and rally their base against the things that we don't agree on because it can raise more money off of that and focus on the things that we can't because it's harder to win an election when you're talking about working with the other side and things are so polarized. Yes. And because, to the point we discussed earlier, primary turnout is really low. So therefore, the only people that actually matter because of gerrymandering are the primary voters. And if it's 10 to 15 percent who are the most sort of moral purity, ideological, don't want to ever work with the other side, don't believe in compromise, then the reality is they're the only ones that actually matter, right? Take immigration. You look at most polling, 70 plus percent of people would say we should neither deport everyone that's here illegally, nor should we have wide open borders, you know, that which creates a real basis for some common sense legislation. However, the 15 percent on the far right who vote in primary say no immigration ever, the 15% on the far, far left who vote in primaries say open borders all the time. And as a result, the message that the elected officials get is, you know, hold the line because they want to get reelected. Um, and if we could just get primary turnout in either of those cases up to, say, even 25, 30%, the fundamental underlying political inputs and incentives change. And that leads to different outputs. Yeah, it does. And I think I think it's important to note, too, that, you know, if you both if both parties work on, it's not to say like the Democratic and Republican parties are the same in any way, shape, or form. They're not. And I'm fundamentally opposed to a lot of the philosophy of the Republican Party in sure. particular, their, their social agenda and the idea that, you know, um, a lot of their economic stuff too, in particular, that I think really hurts the middle class. But um, I think it's important to note that if you agree with somebody on something, like if, if I want more mental health funding for the two thirds of gun deaths that are suicides and a Republican wants more mental health funding for the two thirds of gun deaths that are suicides, that's not a compromise. That's something we both agree on that we should be doing anyways, right? It's not to say like, I want something far in the, in the, on, the, on the left and they want something far on the right and we're gonna meet each other in the middle. It's about talking about what is that thing that isn't in it, even on the left or right that we just generally agree on but aren't talking about that we should focus on. And I think that's part of how we can start to get through some of the I think some of the, the division that we have, hopefully, in this country that we frankly need to, we have to learn how to live with each other and realize that, like, the vast majority of us actually do agree on a lot of stuff that we frank our leaders are frankly just not doing right now. And I think that we can start to break through a lot of that noise and build more trust with each other if we actually did start focusing on some of those things that we can't agree on. So the, the place that has so much power for your movement is also a place that in some ways is incredibly dangerous and toxic, and that's the internet. Um, what would you, if I gave you a magic wand and said, okay, David, what reforms would make the internet a less toxic, kind of awful place, and would just allow us to harness the good that it could do, what, what would you do? I mean, that's a really tough question because it, it involves a lot of tech regulation, right? Yep. That frankly, I don't, I like, I didn't study computer science or algorithms or anything like that when I was in college. And I, I'm not necessarily in a place to make those decisions um, because there's ramifications for it that I'm not even aware of. Um, but 
I think one thing that I would do is try to figure out how can we make sure that like the that let's say the uh, the moderates like the vast majority of people who find themselves in the middle um, are able to have a platform too. And it's these algorithms aren't just incentivizing whoever's throwing the most mud in the first place. Um, and because I think that's driving a lot of the polarization. The fact that mm-hmm. what I call it is like the outrage industrial complex, where we have somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene that goes out there, does something insane, like follows me around, screaming at me that the, you know, saying that I'm trying to take everybody's guns. And, and by the way, Brad, like I was on the shooting team in college. I've shotgunned my entire life. I literally went trap shooting last, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before that. I love doing it. It's fun. I'm not here to take anybody's guns away unless there are risk themselves or others. And if I was, it'd be through a court order with the right to due process and counsel. For somebody like the shooter at my high school that threatened to shoot at my high school multiple times, right? He should not have an AR-15. But the point that I'm getting at is when somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene is able to follow me around and scream at me and get a bigger platform off of that and raise more money off of that, she then is able to basically just move the Overton window of what what is acceptable in a civil society into just complete anarchy, basically, where she makes it acceptable for people to politically, you know, follow around survivors of school shootings, screaming at them, basically threatening them because she says, I have a concealed carry weapon. And I didn't say anything back to her because I want, I didn't know who she was. And I just wanted to deescalate the situation as I had learned from my father growing up, who was an FBI agent and not engage with a potentially armed and dangerous person who seemed to me not mentally stable. Um, and I, I mean, it's the truth. There's a lot of crazy people out there who do shit like what Marjorie Taylor Greene did to me all the time. And my top priority is, look, I'm willing to talk with people about my views and discuss that, but the second that you start coming at me or my staff in particular, the staff that I'm working with in particular, the young people that I'm working with that were interns with March for Our Lives that organized a lot of our meetings on Capitol Hill that day, my top priority is their fucking safety. I am not going to engage with anybody that is potentially an armed and dangerous person screaming at me. Um, but in terms of that regulation, I think trying to figure out something what like, uh, what's it called? The, I forget the name of it, but it basically was the rule that on TV that you had to have an equal amount of time for opposing viewpoints, essentially, or political candidates. Mm-hmm. But watch like PBS NewsHour instead of Fox News or CNN and see how your blood pressure goes down and how actually you get bored because the stuff that they're covering doesn't have a massive amount of bias on top of it where they're trying to, you know, beat the drum, the partisan drum and, you know, enrage people to keep them engaged. It's talking about the news and what's actually going on in a non-biased way. And I think that one easy thing that we could do to resolve a lot of this is bring back the, what was it called? The the fair time rule or the equal time rule um, that required both sides to have equal time on TV and also Fun PBS and NPR way more. You know, I think there's an inherent problem with having a, an entire media e- ecosystem with profit at the center of it for people to get their information. Because naturally, the most profitable thing you can do is divide the people into two of the biggest groups that you can and get them constantly enraged at each other so you can always get as many eyes as possible. And that's profitable, but I don't think that's a good thing for democracy. And it's not to say I don't think that there's, I think that there should be obviously room for private media. But I think we do need to fund PBS and these other sources of nonpartisan information so that they're able to tell the real news and not do it in a way that causes people to just feel like the world is ending every time they watch the news when it's not. Right. All right. Last question. Um, People who listen to this podcast who are older than Gen Z 
if there's one thing that they should understand better so that they can then do, you know, relate better to this generation, what would that be? You know, our generation has gone through a lot. Um, we grew up in the shadow. I, I was born a year before 9-11 happened. My dad was an FBI agent. So that, even though nobody I knew died in 9-11, um, my, my dad's job was greatly affected. His office went from having two officers to having, I, th- I think it was 90 or something crazy. And his job got exponentially way more busy. So, you know, I think there's that. There's the fact that we went through the financial crisis. There's the fact that we went through um, the pandemic, Donald Trump, all this other shit, school shootings, climate change, racial justice, racial injustice, all these, all of these different factors. Our generation has gone through a lot of shit in a very short amount of time. And I think that it would be really helpful if we were given some fucking grace sometimes and not just, you know, written off as every generation is. And I hope that my generation, I doubt we will, but I, I would like to think that hopefully we can be different and that we won't judge future young people and call them stupid and project our own insecurities about our generation onto future generations. Cause there's a great saying that I heard one time, I forget who said it, but like every generation sees themselves as wiser than the past ones and smarter than like the new ones basically, or something like that. And I, I really think it's counterproductive because our young people are our future and we have to invest in them and care about them and realize that they're going to make mistakes along the way and just give us some grace because we've gone through a lot as a generation. It's not to say other generations haven't, but I think going through school shooter drills is something pretty unique that a lot of other generations, thankfully, have not had to go through, but now we do. So so in, in order to invest in, in those future leaders, how do people donate or get involved with Leaders We Deserve? They can go to leaderswedeserve.com. There we go. All right, David, thanks for coming on. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work with you on this stuff and check in with you on it. Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.